Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field. And I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. I'm managing to combine my two great loves of sprinting and working with kids and still getting away with it. This is episode two of the ABA MPT podcast and part two of my interview with Dr. Abigail B. Corkin to discuss her extraordinary life. In this episode, Abigail rejoins us and shares her very close friendship with Diana Dean and their search together into understanding inner behaviour. Her move to Kansas to get a PhD with Ogden Lindsley, her use of precision teaching with her own son, her views on errorless learning, how she learnt Russian using SAFMEDS, how she tracked her own feelings and thoughts and practiced writing positive statements for a minute a day to change her behaviour and her relationships, and so much more. I welcome back Dr. Abigail B. Corkin. I am so honoured to have Abigail Corkin return to record a second episode with me just a little bit of your life in the first two hours that we spent together and then you have done the incredible thing of agreeing to come back and tell us more about your journey to precision teaching and writing your incredible recent discovery of living with epilepsy and the impact that's had on your life and then what has become so fascinating to me is your journey into inner behavior and how you've tracked your own behavior and and some of the lessons that come out of that for how to treat your own behaviour and how to intervene on goals for yourself. So I'm very excited to welcome you back on the, oh, two days away from you heading off on for a month. Right. Yes. Well, thank you. I am, you have a delightful personality and it's very fun to work with you on this. I appreciate it. Greatly. Oh, that's so nice. I figured that if you're laughing, then I may be doing a good job and because your laugh would light up. It lights up the world, you know. It's incredible laugh that you have. And so beautiful. Yeah, it's it's in my head now, so I will take it with me everywhere. So thank you so much for this episode two. I'm just going to review where we got to. Goodness, I don't think you expected me to take you back to your, to your upbringing, but goodness, what an extraordinary start to life that you had surrounded uh, in a family of, well, I can say high achievers, but people right. that, were disciplined in terms of their, you know, organizational skills. We were just talking about from an early age how your father was a very organized worker and you uh, were exposed in an early age to being incredibly organized and focused and, and then across your life developed some incredible interventions about how to track your own behavior and count your work time, all sorts of things. Anyway, we're going to get onto that. So <laughs> I wanted to start just by taking up where we left off. And that was, you were just arriving to see Og. You had decided across the course of the weekend that you wanted to move to Kansas and to take a PhD under his guidance. What would you like to say about that move and, and how that went? And I bet you, because I know now enough about your memory that you would remember your first conversation with Og. Well, this wasn't my first conversation with him. I do remember an early conversation with him. I'm not sure whether it was the first one or not, but the sequence of what made me make the decision of moving to Kansas and getting a PhD with him was that Diana Dean and I were very close friends. And she had started, set up, started 
uh, nursing school program at Mount Hood Community College in Portland, Oregon, and everything was charted. And including the marvelous thing of having students count positive and negative feelings about different classes they were in, different practica settings that they were in. And that helped people decide whether they wanted to work in geriatrics, med surge with adults or children. And uh, so we could literally look at those charts and see this person had a lot of negative feelings when working with children and a lot of positive feelings when working with adults. And therefore, don't take a job at a hospital when you graduate that where you're going to be working in pediatrics. You need to work in gerontology wow. or vice versa. You know, it was just... Wow. And, so can you just give the background to how you met her and how she came in contact with the chat? Diana was 5'2". And I met her at the University of Oregon. She was a friend of Eric Cotton's. They had right. been uh, known one another in Kansas, and she came out to visit him. And right. I walked into Eric's, it was, a, I don't know whether it was his office or not. It was more like a university classroom or lab room or something. Anyway, Diana was standing there leaning against a cabinet. She had on heels, I remember that, and a suit. Whether she had on a suit or not, I don't know, but she looked very sophisticated, which, of course, impressed me. And, and just remind us, what year is this, Abigail? This would have been January of 1968, I believe. Right. And yeah. it would have been after Christmas break. And so Eric had gone back to Kansas, and perhaps she came back to Oregon with him. She was not moving to Oregon at that point. And I met her and we just, you know how sometimes you meet someone and you just click right away. And it was yeah. one of those. And it was sort of like, oh, yes, Eric's over there. We should include him in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but it was sort of irrelevant. And I remember her as being very tall. She was slender. And I remember her as being like 5'7 or 5'8, which, of course, she wasn't. But we just developed a friendship. I remember we used to complain when we got over 100 pounds, especially if we got up to 108 pounds. I don't know what system you operate on there. I, I remember being, when I lived in England, it was stones. But you're not on stones, are you? Yeah, my metric, yeah. Metric, okay, so you're not. I should be able to do that conversion, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> anyway, we used to say, oh my gosh, I'm so fat, I just hit 103 pounds. <laughs> Like, of course, neither one of us was fat. Neither one of us was slightly overweight. <laughs> but anyway, that was one of the fun things. Oh, I had a dog that had puppies. She took one of the puppies. Her boys were, I think, six and eight when I met them, when they moved to Oregon. And my son at that point was about a year old, maybe two. And I remember visiting... Robert and I and Seth visiting Diana and Donnie and Derek, but Seth didn't talk much. And Diana thought this was dreadful. He was 17 months old. Oh. And she was just such, so marvelous at everyday things. I mean, we would be sitting talking on the sofa and one of the boys would come up with a mommy, mommy, you know, he had a question and she would reach out her arm and touch him while she and I were finishing whatever topic we were on. And then she would pull him to her and look at him and say, what is it you want? And, or, you know, what's your question? And I, I learned a lot. I mean, my mother was a great mother, but I learned a lot about mothering from watching her with her boys. 
And then they and Seth became, Seth thought they were marvelous. He tried to figure out how Donnie and Derek, he was four, Donnie and Derek were his cousins, but he wasn't quite sure of how that worked because he knew that Diana was not my sister. And he knew that Diana, I was uh, married before Robert, and he knew that Diana was not Ed's sister and she wasn't Robert's sister. So how were Donnie and Derek his cousins? And so it was just, you know, this very close familial relationship. And Donald has asked me for his daughters, because Diana died when the boys were 13 and 15, to write my memories of her, because he said, you probably knew her on a personal level better than anybody else. And I mean, other than her siblings, but as an adult and an independent person. And so I'm afraid I've started that and I haven't gotten too far. I'm probably about a third of the way through. But I, Donald has two daughters and Derek has two sons. So I, I definitely want to do it for them. And it's fun writing them, too. And it, it involves a lot of insight, too, because Diana was African-American, as are her boys, and... I remember she and I were talking about renting a place together, you know, three boys and the two of us. And and she said, oh, that's one place I looked at. I said, oh, that's gorgeous. We should do that. And she said, well, I inquired, and the man obviously didn't want to rent to me. And um, very naively, I said, well, why not? And the boys are in the back. (laughs) It's like, I got this look of, Abigail, let's not talk about that right now. This was 1972 or something. And that's one of the stories that I need to write, yeah. just to offer what what was the world like then. And I don't get angry very often, and I didn't raise my voice or anything. I just remember inside just feeling so angry that somebody would behave that way, that yeah. the owner of the farmhouse would. And I said, well, I'll read it. And she said, <laughs> yeah. it's not going to work. And so anyway. Oh, she was, Eric would talk to me. He was very, Og was very interested in the inner behavior. I don't know as I knew him then. Eric was interested in it. Diana was really interested in it. And we used to sit and talk about it a lot with these three boys running around. And, and, you know, you'd reach out an arm to keep them quiet till you finished a (laughs) statement about inner. And it was, it wasn't, we didn't know where we were going with it. You know, we knew. Yeah. We knew the aim that we had, but we didn't know an aim, a specific aim. We knew it was more like we were searching. And to have somebody to do that search with was wonderful. And so I was to give a the keynote speech at the Washington State Conference or Council for Exceptional Children. And Diana died a couple of days before that. And I said, there's no way that I can stand up dry eyed in front of a you know, however many people, a couple hundred people that would be there. And so I just said, I can't make it. Well, it happened that her memorial service in Portland was the same day as that. So, so I called Og on a Tuesday, not knowing, or Wednesday, not knowing whether he knew that she had died or not. She had cancer. And uh, the week before, one of my graduate students, I was teaching graduate school at Oregon, Western Oregon University, which was Oregon College of Education at that point. But so I called up Og and I had immediate I mean the day before I had told a graduate student that I was never going to get a PhD. Off the off the books. You know, Elaine Eleanor, I can't remember her name offhand. No, that's not not in my script. So 
I talked to Og, and he said, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I was thinking about getting a PhD, and I was trying to figure out the next, you know, comma, pause. And in that pause, where I was going to say, but I decided not to do that, Og said, come to Kansas, study with me. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I said, well, let me, gosh, it gives me goosebumps even to think about that. And, uh-huh. and it was like, my husband's coming into town tomorrow, and we're going up to Diana's memorial service, and let me talk to him about it. So, meanwhile, a couple of days later, the student walked by, stuck her head in my office and said, never, and walked on. (laughs) I'll never forget that. And uh, so Robert arrived. We spent the night at a friend's house before driving up to Portland. And I said, what would you think about moving to Kansas so I could get a PhD with Og? And he looked at me and he said, well, if that's what you want to do, yeah, we could do that. (laughs) It was like... Okay, so I had asked Og to give me two or three weeks to think about it. I called him back yeah. the following three or four days later and said, okay, wow. I'm coming. And how, how long did it take you to move? Well, I was teaching summer school, and right. Oregon terms started the end of September. So I just assumed that Kansas did too. So I said uh, summer school ended on the 10th, I think it was, of August. And I said, well, I'll, I'll be there the middle of September. He said, well, you can't do that in a different phone conversation. He said, the term starts the 19th, or the semester starts the 19th. And I'm like, I finish on the 10th. I have papers to correct. I have charts to look at. I have to turn my grades in. We have to pack up the house. I mean, we're talking, this is May by now. Pack up the house. You know, I was teaching a full set of summer courses and yeah. commuting back and forth about 60, 80 miles each day. And I remember when we moved, the last thing in the house was the canning pot, the big, you know, blue and white speckled canning pot that you use to process jars. And uh, the spaghetti, or not the spaghetti, the sauerkraut was still in the crock because it takes 10 days to 14 days to let the sauerkraut, you know, and you salt it and wash the cloth and all this stuff. And the last thing I did, everything else is completely out of the house and in the trailer, was to jar the sauerkraut. Wow. (laughs) Put it, and I had 12 quarts, and put it in the box, and then take the box out and, you know, wash out the crock and take the crock out. It was just, it was like, really? You did that? Because I had, from the 10th, and probably didn't leave until the 12th, because I had to turn the grades in. And needed to be there on the 16th or the 17th to enroll. And so we just drove straight to Kansas and with our sauerkraut in the trailer. (laughs) (laughs) And a whole bunch of other canned goods. (laughs) uh, Yeah, we had, it was, it was quite a trip. And neither one of us had lived in the Midwest at all. I mean, we were, we might as well have been. Both of us would have felt more comfortable moving to England or, well, Ireland, I should say, Ireland or Australia than we would have moving to <laughs> Kansas. I mean, it was yeah. just, it was someplace that was familiar. And then moving to the Midwest, which was, was like a foreign country. Yeah. And how, how did you find it when you arrived? Like, 
extremely hot, extremely hot. It's definitely in the mid-90s. And the cracks in the lawn leading up to married student housing were about four inches wide. And I don't know how deep. And it was like, this is absolutely miserable. And I mean, I felt that way. My husband, four to five inches would be 15 centimeters. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. And so, you know, it was, uh, it was just, so we didn't have much money. And I told my mother we needed an air conditioner and she sent me the money to buy an air conditioner, (laughs) which just saved us. I mean, neither one of us was used to heat like that. And And how old was, how old was Seth? Seth was four. He was about to turn five a few days, a week or two after we got there. You know, I mean, any kid that age is ready for an adventure. And uh, so he didn't, he didn't mind this at all. You know, when I first moved to Indianapolis, I was overwhelmed by the friendliness of the people there. People think Australians are friendly, but I remember the first day I arrived in Indianapolis, it was very cold. It was, gee, when did we arrive? Anyway, middle of winter, and it was a record cold winter. And I remember I had my daughter with autism with me. There's a lot of understanding compared to Australia of autism, especially in the Midwest, I found. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to carry her because it was snowing, very cold, and carrying my groceries. And this guy came up and took the groceries off me, and I I thought I was being robbed. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody would do that here. Nobody would. And he was just carrying my groceries for me to the car. Oh, and that was my first that was my first day and I found every day after that, everywhere I went, uh, when I told them that Julia had autism, people went so out of their way to help. I you know, we used to, she was having a food expansion program then and there was a restaurant and this lady used to set up a special I'm gonna cry when I hear this when I say this, but this lady would set up a special table for us where we could go into desensitization, we were working on pizza at the time. And she would set aside part of the restaurant and I was just overwhelmed by people's willingness to go out of their way and just how friendly everybody was, just with good morning, how are you, you know, have mm-hmm. a wonderful day. That's what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, where am I on the planet that people are so willing to give their time and energy to somebody else they don't know? I was, yeah, I was overwhelmed by my time in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. By the friendliness, I don't know. Maybe it's just by comparison to us. We kind of people think Australians are the friendliest people on the planet, but it's. I was overwhelmed by the. I think I love my time there. One of the things that struck me about the Midwest, other than the fact I'd lived on the East Coast, I'd lived in England and Scotland for three years, and I'd lived on the West Coast, and I truly felt as if I was moving to a foreign country. And even one time when we lived there, I flew to England to take care of some things and. And as I was flying back into land at Kansas City, I thought, I may be an American, but I feel <laughs> a lot more comfortable walking around the streets of London than I do living wow. in Kansas. I mean, it just felt much more natural to me. And yeah. so, but what, what was it? What was it that struck you as so different? I don't know. I just always felt comfortable in New England which is yeah. six states in the, in the states, Nova Scotia, where half my relatives live, and, and in England, where I'd lived when I was 15 and then 21, 22, 23. And it was just, I knew how That's things so worked funny. there. I mean, I had relatives who lived there. I had no relatives in Kansas. Yeah. You know, so I had no frame of reference. And what I found compared to, although New York is notorious for unfriendliness, what I found was, 
it was very difficult to make friendships, deep, meaningful friendships with people in Kansas. And it probably right. took me, other than my fellow graduate students, it probably took me about, after we moved to Kansas, about 13 years before I found wow. a group of people that I was still have friendships with them. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're still very close. And it's hard to realize that it was 30, 35 years ago we knew one another. Nobody had gray hair. <laughs> Nobody had a wrinkle. <laughs> so here I was in this yeah. foreign country. Hot. And hot foreign country. And my best friend had died with a few months earlier than that. And, you know, sort of what was I doing here? And Robert, my husband, had no idea what he was going to do. He hadn't gone to college and he thought, well, you know, I suppose I could, I could move to Kansas City, but I don't know, 50 miles away. And I could live there and I could go to one of the community colleges. I mean, university totally intimidated him. Diana's mother said he could live at their house and Diana's stepfather was chief of fire department. The fire department said, I'll get you a job so you can work part-time. And, I mean, they were just so accommodating and so wonderful. Oh. And then Robert decided that he was going to try a semester at the University of Kansas. And right. talk about working hard. I mean, same as how I felt. You know, it's like, I've got to work hard. I've got to work hard. I've got to work hard. And... uh he thought he was going to flunk everything, and he ended up with straight A's his first semester. Wow. And so, you know, he walked into, we were living in married student housing, he walked into somebody, the next door, you know, this neighbor's apartment, and he was crying. And all these guys thought, oh, my gosh, he flunked. And he said, I got straight A's. Oh. <laughs> they were all ready to kill him because he had complained <laughs> so much. <laughs> but... I never got him to count anything academically, but within the family, especially when my niece moved in with us, we were back, where were we living? No, we were in Kansas. She moved in with us, and so I thought, you know, we really need to do a few family projects here. You know, all yeah. of a sudden we have a 16-year-old who was living with us, and oh, my son was 11, my husband was working three jobs. I mean, he'd already graduated from nursing school. Yeah, he'd already graduated from nursing school. And then I was a principal of a school for children with emotional and behavior problems. And so then finally, my husband said one of the most brilliant things was he said, all right, you know, we're ships passing in the night and we need an hour a week that is devoted just to the four of us. It cannot include meals, TV a movie, it has to be interactive. And wow. so we did things like uh, go for walks, go for hikes, yeah. play Monopoly on the living room floor, sit in front of the fireplace and talk. I'd probably have to ask them what some of the other things that we did were. But, you know, we did all kinds of things. And, and I would I would have, they all thought I was like, oh, mom, here you go again. Everybody has to count positive feelings and negative feelings. And, oh, really? Yeah, right, right. And this would have been 1982. That's when my niece, Abby, moved in with us to finish high school. How did they count them? What did they use to count their behavior? I probably gave them counters. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So, off, I don't remember offhand. I'd have to ask 
yeah. one of them, what did you use to count? But I think I probably gave them counters to use. And did Seth know how to chart? Did he know what a chart was? Oh, he definitely knew what a chart was. Uh, yeah. Yes, he did his very first chart when he was five years old. Wow. Because when he would catch a ball, he would go like this. And it's like, well, if yeah. you can't see it, you're not going to catch it. And so Og decided to make a film of me teaching him. Somehow the film has disappeared, so we don't have it. Oh. I still have the chart. And yeah. it's a marvelous. He used probably green, blue, I think, maybe, rather than green. Blue for the dots and red for the X's. You know, blue yeah. for the times he caught the ball and red for the times he missed. And there was a whole lot of really close overlap. I've shown this chart. I don't think I've ever published it, but I've shown it a lot at conferences when I give workshops. Yeah. And because people say, well, you can't, you know, this is too hard. I can't do this. You know, I'm not, I'm yeah. not a math, I, I'm not mathematically inclined. And so it's like I yeah. slap up a chart from a child who was five years old. This is my five-year-old. Yeah, Shut right. This is, this is a yeah. five-year-old. And of course he'd, you know, uh, written on the bottom, go KU, University of Kansas, KU. Yeah. Filled in the numbers with, you know, red or blue or, you know, he decorated the chart. So it was his. Oh. And then he got stuck in the middle where they just overlapped. The corrects and errors were about the same. The catches and misses yeah. were about the same. And so then we went, I think, to a two-minute timing. And then they began yeah. to separate. And uh, wow. so, yeah, it was it was a whole lot of fun. I mean, we all enjoyed it. And I mean, Seth just thought Og was great. I remember telling him one time, you know, you can. Oh, I also did something with them using a linguistic reading program and a whole language reading program. And the whole language one was terrible. And I mean, it wasn't that his frequencies were bad. It was just, oh, my gosh, are these stories are just so insane. So I said, you know, Og said that it doesn't matter if you make a mistake. You just keep right on going. And he said, really? Og said that? And so he just started <laughs> reading faster. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then another time he... So, yeah, you realize, you know, in the community of behavior analysis, there's many fields of thought that, you know, learning should be errorless, correct? I do not That's agree right. with that. Yeah, could, I would love you to talk a little bit about that because okay, I think there'll be many people listening here that may not have been exposed to that type of conversation from a precision teacher. You learn by your mistakes. I mean, I have learned by my mistakes. So the idea of, okay, what year was it? It was 1987, I think. Yes, I was going to go to Russia in December of 87 to January 88. And I thought, well, I can't go without knowing some Russian. So I bought a book on Russian. Actually, I think I may have bought it beforehand. And the reason why I wanted to learn Russian was because I read some of Anna Akhmatova's poems in English. And I thought, if they are this good in English, they have to be absolutely fabulous in Russian. Therefore, I need to learn Russian. And so that was my motivation. And so I bought flashcards and I did one-minute timings before going to work on read them in Russian, you know, just flipping as yeah. fast as I could, Russian to yes. English, and then English to Russian. That was really interesting. What else did I do? Reading phrases. Like how, many timings, how many timings would you have run? Oh, my. Those three plus reading Russian 
speaking yeah. Russian. Actually, it's in the Journal of Precision Teaching. Is uh, it? Yeah, right. Okay. I, I don't exactly know what assume. year, but, you know, it was uh, it. it was quite a few. Yeah. Quite a few timings and that how, I was doing. And how many each timings each day would you run of those flashcards in a row? Well, it would depend upon how well I did. Because right. I'm so always the, end on a high. Right. I'm of the opinion that when I do a bunch of timings, I think the, the timings chart, was that out then or not? I'm not sure. Anyway, the timings I would do, I would take the best one and chart it because that made me push further. If I had taken the middle one or the lowest one, it's like, well, all I have to do is beat, you know, 57. You know, if I get 59, that's okay. Oh, no, no, honey, you got to you gotta beat 72. That was your high. Yeah. So you got to do better than 72. So however many timings it took me to get better than 72. Some of them, occasionally it was 10 timings. Rarely was, yeah. it, was it that many. And so then reading the speaking was a problem because I could speak Russian at 35 to 50 words a minute. And I thought, well, if I don't put any Russian speaker. Well, this was when the so- it was the Soviet Union then. This will put any yeah. Russian speaker to sleep at, you know, that speed. So I still don't think, I, matter of fact, I know I'm not. I keep looking over there because my Russian flashcards and my French flashcards are over there. So, so you would be looking at your rate of error and I would call them learning opportunities, correct? So you'd be looking at your rate of LO and that would inform you next teaching goal, presumably, if the errors were not shaping out. I didn't have that problem. My issue with learning Russian, and by myself, I covered probably two semesters in one semester, but I knew I was going to Russia in December. So, you know, I had to do something. And it was interesting because there were five people on the trip who were fluent. Three of them were born and reared in Russia and or in China after they had left Russia. And then Tony, my friend who was the concert conductor, it was the thousandth anniversary of the Russian Orthodox Church, and he had found wow. the original manuscript of Rachmaninoff's Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom at, get this, a monastery in Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and he <laughs> transcribed it, and you know, because it was all in pieces, and put it together and taught this English or this American group in Maine and another one, another two in California to sing in Slavonic, old Slavonic Russian, which was what the church wow. liturgy was. An amazing fellow. And so we went on that, but I, I had to learn some. So on the trip, there were these five fluent Russian speakers, and then there were five yeah. of us who had covered about two years of beginning Russian. But we could manage to ask a question, a direction question in Moscow and get the directions, understand them, and then go to where we needed to go. And that was very, very rewarding. I was flabbergasted when I think of it now that I could cover an entire year of Russian in four months. And that intervention of daily sacraments. Oh, absolutely. And did I worry about whether I made an error? No. When I do a reading of something I've written, you know, or poems or something from a nonfiction book or a novel, do I, you know, it's nice to be able to read absolutely fluently and never make a mistake, but that's not me. And so I gloss over it, I cover it up, I go back, something like that. So I figure in learning, and I I learned this beforehand, you know, you make mistakes. I'm learning, 
A mistake is an opportunity to learn how to do something better. And if I'm on the shuttle to the moon, mistakes probably cannot be tolerated. <laughs> but there, I'm not the only person on there. So I've got, you know, there were three of them. If there was a mistake, they could probably, you know, one of them would say, whoa, you know, or something would be, you know, they could double check with another person. I don't know whether they did or not, but, you know, hypothetically, you know, I think that. And Og was, you don't have to have Everless learning. You know, you can, people make mistakes in life. You know, hopefully we don't make the giant ones. I wanted to ask you a question there because, you know, Dr. Barons and I have talked a lot about that how it informs your instruction. You know, if you are working with a student that continues to make errors in the absence of any prompts or assistance, that that should inform your instruction. Phase change line, if the errors are consistent, and then work on that particular item and then mix it in with the the rest of what they're doing. I mean, one of my favorite ones was the BD mixture. And so what I would tell the kids or actually they were graduate students, I would say, this is what you need to do with your elementary children. You say, we're taking all the Ds away. You will not see a D until I tell you you will. So all the words have Bs in them, no Ds. And so they work on that with the timings until the child was fluent with the Bs. And then you announce to him, okay, I'm taking all the Bs away. You will have only Ds. And when they're fluent in that, you could say, okay, we're done with the Ds. We're putting the two of them together. And, you know, it's, I actually, I didn't find that any of them made mistakes with the BD confusion after that. But if they read, and part of it I learned too, from teaching adults to read, you know, non-reading adults how to read. And one of them here in Alaska and one in Oregon. And, you know, it's like, they're okay making a mistake. You know, you learn from your mistakes. If you take a left turn and you should have taken a right turn, you figure it out. I mean, you know, you're not dropping off the edge of a cliff. So, no, I've never been, you have to get errors down to zero. You know, anything between zero and two or three is fine with me. Okay, well, we could spend a whole episode on that. But yeah, we let's could. get back because now we're in Kansas. <laughs> we've been to Russia and back, and now we're back in Kansas <laughs> with, the, with the giant cracks in the grass and hay. Right. And- and I want to just add in there because you told me something before the recording of this podcast that for a long part of your life you would be up at four a.m. in the morning. Right. So we, you have, yeah, you have created a life which is, uh, you know, requiring a lot of discipline to get everything done that you want to do. Mm-hmm. And here you are, about to start your PhD. So how did it start? I'm told there were three of us who started at the same time, and he said, "I want you to get all A's this semester." You know, I'm a maverick. He didn't say that, but I'm a maverick and we need to impress the yeah. department. And nobody had ever told me. What did me that get- mean? Yeah, what did that mean? Like, how, how did, oh, let's take up the question that I was going to ask you is, you know, is it true that Og was not in the behavior analysis department Correct. at Kansas University? Correct. Yes. It, he Can was in the AFHE, Administration and Foundations of Higher Education. Right. And so that was the department he was in. The department chair really liked Ogden. They had a very good relationship. And I don't know exactly why, what happened, whether it was an intellectual disagreement or a personality disagreement with the people in the behavior analysis department. We didn't even call it behavior analysis. 
Yeah. Golly, ugly. I can't remember the acronym for that. Human Development and Family Life. HDFI. Right. Human Development and Family Life. Wow. And right. so, but he told me when they would give open lectures, you know, like Don Bear or Todd Grizzly or, oh my gosh, I just forgot the other one. Sorry. That, you know, go, go to this lecture this afternoon. So I was like, okay, I'll go. So I went. God, that's embarrassing not to be able to remember the other person. Anyway. It'll come to me. Yeah, it will. Maybe, hopefully not at two o'clock in the morning. And anyway, <laughs> and so he didn't necessarily go, but he would tell me to go and, and others and we would go and learn something, you know, that was very valuable. And as I mentioned earlier, when Eric didn't show up, you know, until about two thirds of the way through the fall semester, we watched films of Lovas and Ellen Reese and, you know, Skinner and other people. And so we got some background, or I, the others weren't there then. They were, I don't know where they were, but they were not in that part of the country. And so we got some, I got some background that way. And then I'm sitting here listening to these other people. And, but there was something about the measurement, the measurement and looking at frequency, not looking at, count. Because my master's advisor, Barbara Bateman said, you know, that's fine. You can teach a chimpanzee to read. But if you're going to get to, I don't know, you know, 50 words a minute, it's probably going to take you 200 years. I I don't even remember the numbers that she said. Wow. But you can do it. You know, that was uh, probably based on, you know, some of the work that Harry Harlow had done with chimpanzees, which I really liked his work a lot. And so, and I never forgot that. And, and she didn't know much about precision teaching. I mean, she and Eric right. were not buddy-buddy. And uh, I probably told her more about precision teaching than anybody else did. Maybe not, because Clay was one of her students as well. And Clay Starlin and Ann yeah. Starlin. So back to KU now, from the U of O back to KU. By the time I finished Eric's First class, which for me was four weeks long, not 10, for all of us that first semester, it was, this is genius. I mean, you have to have standardization on measurement. Blood pressure is standardized. Carbon dating is standardized. You know, all of these things that my father would bring home as ideas and talk about, they're standardized. And so it's like, why not standardize measurement of learning? And I mean, it was just, that was what sucked me in that first month that I had of precision teaching. What was Eric's course called? Do you remember? It was called Precision Teaching. Teaching. Yeah, right. It was called Precision Teaching and nobody on campus knew anything about what it was about. And Barbara Bateman was my advisor and she said, I don't know what this is about, but you're uh, you are the guinea pig, and I want you to go take the class and wow. come back and tell me what it's about. And should I recommend it to other students? And, and, I, what, did you, and what did you say? Came running back, and it's like, oh, my God, Barbara, this is incredible. You know, blah, 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 blah. You know, give her all this explanation and everything. And, you know, measurement was not her area, but she knew. Yeah. So the following semester, or following term, winter term, I took it fall term, winter term, and spring term, the rest of, you know, the department students, graduate students, started taking precision teaching from Eric. So there was a real strong cohort at the University of wow. Oregon. And the action, I mean, that's where the one-minute timing started. 
was in Ann yeah. Starlin's classroom. And right. Eric, or I mean, uh, Clay was working on his dissertation. And yeah. Eric had suggested it, according to Eric, which I love this story, and according to Harold Kunzelman, Eric said it was Harold Kunzelman's idea. Harold Kunzelman said it was Eric's idea. <laughs> Harold was in Seattle at the time, heading up the EEU, the Experimental Education Unit at the University of Washington. And Eric yes. was in Eugene, and they had known one another in Kansas. And according to both of them, it either occurred on a weekend when Eric went up to Seattle, or it occurred by phone, probably about two or three o'clock in the morning, when both of them had <laughs> had too much to drink and smoked too much pot. <laughs> they both gave me the exact same story. And Harold said, I think it was Eric who came up with it. And Eric said, I think it was Harold who came up with it. So... We will never know. They're both gone. And it wouldn't matter yeah. anyway because it they each credited the other one. And so it was an yeah. idea developed by two people in a middle-of-the-night, inebriated, stoned phone conversation or in person. That was the now one that, thing they couldn't decide. I have a thousand questions for you, but I want to just talk to you about that because there will be a lot of people listening here that I'm hoping that are outside of precision teaching within – other disciplines. Oh. So I want you just to say a little bit about the one minute timing because okay. this is something the, that everybody could incorporate into their life. Um, Og and Julie Vargas yes. both said, you know, you have to look at the, maybe I should give Og credit for this. No, I think they both said it. You have to look at the whole behavior. And Julie makes a point in one of her articles that you're not looking at the whole behavior when you take a sample of it. And I like that. I mean, she said it in print much better than I just said it. And then Og was saying, well, he argued with Eric and Harold and said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that because you're only looking at part of the behavior. Well, the problem with Og's objection was that Harold and Eric were coming up with increases in corrects, learning and decreases in the errors and when they showed that to Og it's like I don't know what he said because I wasn't there but it's sort of like okay guys you know you win we're, we, we can do the one minute timing and then I used the one minute time well, fast forward to 1970 the first one minute timing the first one minute timing started in April uh, the beginning of April 1968 so fast forward to, I think it was uh, the fall of 1977, and I was writing in my journal, I was in counseling, I was jogging every day, I was working hard as a student, I was doing some other things too, eating right, which I've basically always done, but there were some other very specific things. And I thought, I've got to give my husband a better wife for his birthday, which was two or three weeks away. And I thought, right. what am I going to do? I've got to improve my positives about myself. And I was counting them. And they were in the bottom two, a cycle of the chart, you know, between one a day and or zero a day and 10, maybe up into 15. But they were at the bottom and they were there was a whole lot of bounce in there. And I thought, this is not good. And I would not accept this kind of bounce if I were teaching a child reading or math or science or something. So I thought, well, I'm doing all these other things and nothing is working. 
And did I say I was writing in my journal every day as if that was going to solve yeah. the problem? Okay. So I thought, I only have two weeks left. And I thought, well, a one-minute timing works for reading and it works for math. Yeah. Maybe it'll work for this. And so I started doing a one-minute timing. And in two weeks, I had flipped it around. And so my, a one-minute timing? A one-minute timing. I was counting all day. Positive feelings, negative feelings. Positive thoughts, negative thoughts, missed opportunities yeah. for both. So I had six six counts going. And it seems to me as though there might have been some others. And Oh, and then I added in the one-minute timing. And that made the difference. It took the errors down. I, not the errors. It took the negative and unpleasant thoughts and feelings down, and it boosted the positive ones up. So this is a one-minute timing of practicing what? I was writing them down. I was writing down my positive thoughts and my positive feelings. And when it was a feeling, I asked to risk it. Because, you know, I could have a thought that I was intelligent, which, by the way, I did not believe at the time, even though people had been telling me that all all my life. But it's like, oh, if you knew the real me, you'd know that I really wasn't very intelligent. And I have since come to find out that women, of all the graduate classes that I've taught, I don't know, maybe two or 300 students. I might have two or three guys in all of that count their positive and negative feelings. All the rest counting it were women. And it's like, right. oh, wait a minute. We got something going on here. So I'm yeah. just... Uh, so, for, so how many... Like, What would the count be in a minute as an example? Okay. For writing, and I used abbreviations, but I knew what it was. Right. I got as high as 35 positives a minute. Can you give us a sample of what it might be? Well, let me see. Oh, she can. She's waiting for <laughs> I'm still looking for the original, but I have, if I can read it. Mature. I have, a, well, I have the luxury of being able to see what Abigail could call upon here. For people that don't know this woman, the information she has about herself and her life and the amount of time she has, it's an extraordinary story. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Warm, well-balanced. That was a surprise to me. Yeah. Somebody up here said, oh, you're such a well-balanced person. And I thought, oh, my God, you got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Potential for success. Good mother, good teacher, good wife, good, you know, whatever, good at sex, you know, whatever. Um, introspective, yeah. excellent sexually, uh, risk-taking, guts, independent, laughter, energy level, patient. You know, those are some of them. Fantastic. And why a, a free write? Why write them down as opposed to just saying them? Because it never occurred to me to say them. <laughs> <laughs> and also because, because it was very reinforcing, very rewarding yes. to write them. And I could well, go back. Well, look at that. You can, those ones that you're reading out now, like how – when did they come from? Is that are they current ones or something? Oh yeah, they're all current. But I I did them in uh, my original list was twenty four thoughts, nine feelings, positive thoughts, and oh here is the date nineteen seventy seven, and it would have wow. been September, October. Yeah, and then I've got a bunch at the top that I I mean I've got my two lists one you know thoughts on one side feelings on the other side. And then I've got a bunch more at the top, probably another 20 or so, that people have given me as compliments. And it's like, oh, i got to add that to oh. my list. And oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. And so would you then develop a list and just read from those? Or are you drawing upon 
how you felt in the moment? It was not in the moment. And that's a very good question because a lot of people have said, how do I feel right now? And one of the teachers at the school for kids with behavior and emotional problems said she had them count now feelings. I mean, she called them now right. feelings, what you are feeling now. So they had, yeah. but my point was, and we talked about this a lot, was they need to repeat all these positives because they may not be feeling it right now, but they could. The other thing we learned from that, excuse me, which was fantastic and tragic, although they survived, we had three students, and I don't even know as it was in the same semester, that their positive count went times 10. In one day, wow. it, it jumped times 10. And that to me, well, that to the teacher, Doreen Overman and I became a warning because that night, one of the boys returned to his dorm and tried to die by suicide. Another situation, a girl returned to the dorm, tried to die by suicide. And then a third situation was a boy I think he lived at home and he did that and it was times 10. And the next day he committed a uh, grand larceny. A fe- anyway, it was a felony category. And so it's, you know, it's like Doreen and I were like, okay, any times 10 in one day means hang on to your hat and notify people. This person may be at risk, maybe in danger of doing something really stupid. Well, thinking about it psychologically, and I mean, this is nothing but theory. It's like, I feel fantastic. And then the crash comes. Right. And that, that would be my explanation for it. Whether it's accurate or not, I don't know. But, and it's subjective on Doreen's and my part that, you know, something, something else was going on there that, so, and we never found it again. You know, in the next couple of years, there was no student who, Jumped to times 10. So, and then, Dor- um, not Doreen. Oh, later, Emma Cobain. Let's see, that would have been in 80. Probably about 20 years later, 10 or 20 years later, Emma Cobain Douglas did her dissertation on inner behavior. And we used to do workshops together. And one of the things we found was looking at her data and my data was that here's another you do not have to take negative thoughts and feelings to zero. What you need, and of course that's not academic, that's a totally different thing. What you need is a minimum of a times 10 difference between the positives and the negatives. And we had some people who had a times 18 difference. I think that might've been the highest one, but usually times 15 to times 18. So as long as there was You know, that space on the standard chart showing that we were okay, including then doing a quote unquote, because this is from the academics, but doing a retention chart. If you don't count, if you don't do the one minute timing for a month, you know, how are you? And an after phase and they were fine. You know, they maintained that. When Emma and I looked at that, it was like, oh my gosh, how could we not have realized this before? How could we not have seen this before? It was so obvious to us at that point. Oh my goodness, I just got goosebumps talking to you about this. It's just so profoundly impactful what you're talking about here, Abigail. We're talking about something that you have developed that for a minute of a day, 
somebody could spend time practicing these things and profoundly change the way they interact with their environment. How many students do you think have been impacted by your work, if you had to say? Like, where has it shown up and and where is it still being used? I've had about 100 people. Okay, over 1,000 people have counted inner behaviors in research studies. And of those, because we most of them were before, I did the one-minute timing on thoughts and feelings, most of them, I mean, since then, it's been 100. And the interesting thing about 100 or slightly over, the interesting thing to me is that none of the research studies were suggested by me or supervised by me. It was like, well, I remember Leo Rania called me up one day and I'm like, Leo Rania is calling me. I don't know whether you know who that is or not. but it, I don't. Okay, it might as well have been Skinner calling me. Totally, right. on a, You know, I answer the phone. This is before the days of cell phones. And it's like, hello, this is Leo Rania. I'm, I'm the editor of, you know, jo, uh, Joe Walpe and I are the editors of Social Behavior and Psychiatry, which is a European journal. And I'm like, I know who you are. <laughs> I didn't say that, but it's like, why are you calling me? <laughs> he was calling me because he had received a paper by Doug Kostowitz where Doug had done this as a master's thesis under John Cooper. And so he he just wanted to talk to me about it. And uh, (laughs) it was fun. He's great. He's marvelous on the phone. I mean, he's no longer alive, but he was marvelous on the phone. And And what was the outcome of your discussion? He was just telling me that he decided to, he and Wolpe had decided to, I think Wolpe was still alive then. Anyway, he decided to accept Doug's article in the journal, and he wanted to let me know and wanted to compliment me on being the source of this technique and talk to me a little bit more about it. And uh, so, you know, that's, I mean, I'm not at a research institute. I don't work at a hospital. I don't work at a university. So all of this is people hearing about it and doing it as a research project. And so, do you know if anybody has ever done it for their approach to parenting? Like, in other words, use positive statements about parenting. Not that I know of. But you see, I didn't know about any of these other people who did the one minute timing until somebody said, Hey, did you see this article? You know, or ISIL in Oklahoma said, I happened to come across it because there was a reference to in the Cooper, all of a sudden, the Bill Heward. The book's right over there, but I can't remember the third author. I seem to be able to do two these days, not three. No, I'm joking. (laughs) And mentioned Doug's article, or the Kostowitz article, and I went to look at that, and that's where he cited you and I found your name. So she called me, or emailed me. She emailed me, of course. And the same way you did. You know, it's like I get this email, and both of you at the same time, which is so, I mean, within days of one another. And it's like, wow, this is really great. I just, you know, so impacted by the fact that as a parent of a child with autism, this is a profound intervention that parents could use when they're dealing with, you know, the coming to terms with the diagnosis of their child and then having to get into early intervention. And like, the, yeah, it's a very challenging thing. But I think, you know, taking a minute a day as an intervention, incredible. Anyway, there you go. So now we have a two week period of time, yeah, to transform 
yourself as a as a wife. <laughs> so that's how we got into talking about the one minute timing. You started to so two weeks you charted your data. I wanna gosh, I wanna talk about how you did that because most people that are listening to this haven't seen your incredible watch, but I am gonna put that in our resources so that you can see so you were using your watch, your counter with beads right. on the watch. Yeah, of course, nobody can see that. So I'm going to, because we're Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> but I can. Did I send you a photograph of it? Found it on Facebook. So I'm going to put that in our resources. Yeah, beautiful. A beautiful photo on Facebook of you wearing that watch. Right. And, John Eshelman took um, that picture. Because you mentioned before that you would, you would track six of your behaviors a day. And so this watch has the ability to count multiple behaviors yeah so i'm going to show people that what could people be using today uh, if they don't have the ability to make a watch like that cell phone one of the people um a friend of mine she's a psychiatrist and she was recording i forget exactly what now but it's published in an article she was recording something similar to feeling centered feeling peaceful going oh yeah I can't. Yeah, I mean, I have an app that's called Counter, just that. And, well, just right now you can see positive and negative statements. But it's very easy. She was using a BlackBerry at the time. And so she counted it as she had positives and negative sign and maybe a circle. And I can't remember exactly what they represented, but I did state it in the article. And of course, I asked her if I could use those data in the article. And uh, so. So it strikes me that you could write a book called How to Save Your Marriage in Two Weeks. Oh in my God. <laughs> you know, if I looked at that title, I'd say, oh yeah, give me another one. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's profoundness of these uh, interventions. Uh, so, right, we are in Kansas. Do you remember you mentioned to me that you would have weekly supervision with on your project? How did you decide what your project was going to be and what was the title of your PhD? Og gave me about five or six different topics to choose from. And what I found was that three weeks later, there was only one of those topics that I still thought about. And that was inner behavior, something in inner behavior. What was it? You really want to know the title of my PhD thesis? Oh, here it is right here. 100%. Measuring and Comparing Perceived Facts, Funds, and Freedom. (laughs) I'll put it up there for you. Oh, there you go. Yes, please. 1979. You told me before you actually know how many hours it took you to write that PhD. Yes, right, including the study. The studies that I did, I did three different studies. It was about 1,700 and oh, I don't remember the exact number, 1,710 hours or 1,760 something, 1,750 wow. we'll say for right now. And right. So. And tell us, how did that time with Og change the trajectory of, of what you did? You know, an interesting thing is what I did, I gave him my pilot project at one of my meetings, and then at the very end, with fear and trepidation, it's the only way to describe it, I said, I did some charts I'd like you to take a look at. And I handed him this set of charts that I had done 
the birthday present. They created the birthday present for my husband. And he looked at them and he said, this is incredible. You have to change your dissertation topic. (laughs) My God, you're kidding me. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) It's like, you know, I don't know, months or years later, I thought, you don't tell your advisor you are not going to follow his <laughs> suggestion. I mean, you know, it was just, I'm not going to do that. And I think he probably said something like, why not? And I said, what I have for my thesis right now yeah. will be the pilot project, the pilot study for my work on inner behavior for the rest of my life. Yeah. And he sat back and said, okay. And I'll never forget that. I mean, as I thought about it later, it's like, how on earth did you have the guts to tell your advisor, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so, what, what was, how would you describe your relationship with him? What was he like as a supervisor and a mentor? And Oh, he was great. I mean, we both had incredible yeah. senses of humor. So, you know, it was easy to laugh. There was one yeah, other yeah. time that I told him he was wrong, uh, maybe more than one, but Another time I told him he was wrong, he said that he never should have done the behavior bank because nobody uses it. And this was after one of our meetings, we were walking out of the building. And I said, you're wrong. I said, what you have done is a great contribution to the study of human behavior. And if nobody is using it, that is their problem. But you give it another hundred years and people will look back on that and say, we've got some. In- I, I, meanwhile, Galileo and Copernicus are running through my mind, you know, and, wow. his, you know, their relationship wow. was to the heavens. Og's relationship was to people. The data that was gathered. You, for people that don't know what the behavior bank oh, is, can you describe that? The behavior that bank don't know is what where you take is, a chart and you describe, or excuse me, you don't describe it. You had, it was entered into the behavior bank by each day's data was entered in as well as, and then when they analyzed it, let me skip to that. When they analyzed it was first phase, highest pinpoint, middle pinpoint, lowest pinpoint, last phase, highest pinpoint, middle pinpoint, lowest pinpoint. And then in between was the acceleration. And the steep acceleration, the middle acceleration, the low acceleration. And all these data were collected that would show what student learning, what human behavior, whatever was going on could be. And they did the summary. What was his, what was his goal in creating? His goal bank? was to take a look at. What not, was his I'm, goal? I, I have a feeling he's sort of sitting bank. there saying, no, 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 that wasn't my goal. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to do the best I can to represent what his goal was, to collect information on human behavior. And yeah. what we found was that most people communicate by what a child does, what a parent does, what a husband does, what a teacher does, and they don't go yeah. look up information in the behavior bank. And he actually sent me, a second copy of the behavior bank notebook. He said, you're the only person who uses this information. And so here's another copy for you, which is fabulous for me because I have two homes now. Then I kept one in my office and one at home, but now I have a home in Alaska and a home in Oregon. Where does it exist? The behavior bank. 
I don't know. That would be a question for Scott Bourne. Where are these actual records? I mean, they were done on those giant reels of, I mean, we're talking, we're talking entering things or Carl Koenig would know. He was the one who did his dissertation on it. How do we have all this information and analyze it with people? And Carl looked at, boy, I'm just drawing a blank right now. I'm sorry. Carl's dissertation was on the statistics of all of these, this information. And then out of that, because the data were gathered between, I think, 69 and 71. And he finished, Carl Koenig finished his dissertation in 72. And so we didn't have, not only did we not have the technology that we have nowadays, we also didn't have the concept of acceleration in the way that we use it daily. We didn't use it daily then. We were more looking at the frequency of things. And then it was in the 70s, the early, mid, and late 70s, that we began to look at the frequency, the acceleration, and the bounce of data or the variability. So, How has the Behaviour Bank contributed to the field of behaviour analysis, do you think? I think it has been ignored, sadly, sadly to say, because for some, I don't know whether I want to say this or not, but for some reason, most people in behaviour analysis look at Og as, you know, out there. He's out there somewhere, which truly he was. He was out there somewhere. Problem is, he was years ahead of many people. And he was not going to talk about discrete learning. He was not going to impose record ceilings on people, which, you know, when you do discrete trials, you're imposing record ceilings. And the student may be able to do far, the person, the person may be able to do far better than imposing a ceiling on them. And so, yeah, it's, he was one of those people who was, well, 40 years ago, I would say he was 20 years ahead of his time. Now, as time has passed, I would say he was well over 20 years ahead of his time, more like 50, 100 years. Somebody's going to look at that behavior bank information and say, holy cow, we've got, you know, data on 42,000 people and we've got, you know, 300,000 charts. I mean, I don't know. Don't anybody quote those numbers because I just pulled that off the top of my head. But we have massive, massive amounts of human data about how people learn and how people behave. So you spent a lot of time with him. Do you have any idea how many hours you might have spent with Og? Oh, gosh, I never even thought about that. Three hours a week for 75, September of 75 through May of 79, plus uh, two to three hours a week, and plus I worked for him at the Behavior Bank I developed the first bibliography of precision teaching literature. And then John Eshelman took that over and continued it. And I don't know where, we still don't have a complete list right now. John and I have, or John has talked about that. John and I have talked about that. We need a complete bibliography, not just a reference list, but the whole complete bibliography. And other, lots of social time. Robert... (laughs) Robert and I, Nancy and I are still fast friends. Robert and I became friends with Og and Nancy, and we were out at the ranch one time, and we ate dinner, the four of us ate dinner on, oh, I don't know, a little tiny table that was probably two by three feet. 
and yeah, just definitely. and then Robert went out in the field with Og and you know a round bale of hay rolled on our dog and Robert thought oh god the dog's dead well the dog got up and ran away after this you know I don't know how much a round bale weighs a thousand pounds and you know I don't know what ha- how the dog survived but he got along fine Robert had grown up in ranch country and Og just loved having this ranch with cattle oh. and so the next day I was telling someone that Robert and I had been out to well, on the way home, one of the things we said was, isn't it nice to finally come across a couple that you can really relate to and have conversations with and talk about things that are academic or talk about something like, you know, cattle and, you know, their behavior. And, and so, I was, and we, you know, we were very happy. And so the next day I was talking to a friend and said, uh, we were out at Nancy and Ogg's and had supper there last night. And she said, don't you find them a bit odd? (laughs) I said, well, no, actually. We were saying how much like us they are and how we enjoy their company. (laughs) It's like, I didn't find them odd at all. I found them very normal, but maybe that's not very normal. I have no idea. (laughs) So, How did he talk about being a maverick and I guess you talked about him being you know on the outer of the behavior analytic community and how people saw him how did he cope with that do you think well I think on the one realm it was like yeah what I sometimes think it's like reach out break out of your shell move beyond your comfort zone and I mean, obviously he had to do that. He was a World War II veteran. You can't live in your comfort zone when you're in a war or when you're a POW, you know, comfort zone is gone, you know, and just the creativity of ideas. And then we grew up 20 years apart. I mean, he's 20, he was about 20 years older than I, 19 years older yeah. than I, and we grew up 40 miles apart and in that New England culture. And I think that was one of the commonalities that we always had. I mean, you know, you just, you don't have to explain things to another New England. I don't have to explain things to another New Englander. And he was another New Englander. And also his father and my uncle had belonged to the same fraternity at Brown, although they were not at Brown University at the same time, but they were both very involved with the university alumni association of the of the whatever fraternity it was they belonged to you know so i'm at my aunt and uncle's house and i showed them a picture of my back in new england in rhode island showed them a picture of me in my commencement robes and og standing next to me and they said now who is that distinguished looking gentleman and i said knowing that a lot of people hear lindsley as lindsay I said, that's Ogden Lindsley. And they both looked at me and said, Ogden Lindsley? Why, we knew his father. (laughs) Wow. And they said of Ogden, he was a sandy-haired little 10-year-old, but he was a handful. (laughs) (laughs) I love that statement. And I told Ogden that, too. And now his brother Bradford was much better behaved. (laughs) And it was a story I just loved of their perception of Ogden. 
Well, he was brilliant. He was creative. He was doing things. He was curious. And, uh, curious. you know, so, and I just read a statement in uh, one of the newspapers that I read. So it was, a, it was an article about creativity and how creative people travel a lot. And I thought, well, right. that's interesting. And I'd never thought about that. But, you know, and you t- said something about my bravery. And I'm thinking, bravery? You know, what is she talking <laughs> about? But, you know, if I'm going to go visit some cousins in Nova Scotia, you know, my parents put me on a train and send me off. I'm 13 years old. That was just normal for me. And, you know, flying from when one parent was in Maine and the other one was in Boston, nine years old, one parent puts me on the plane, sends me down, the other parent greets me. I, it's so normal to me that I don't even think about it, other than how beautiful it was in that flight and, you know, how much I enjoyed it. I'm so fascinated by what you just said there about creativity because I found my way to precision teaching because of Karen Pryor. And uh, early on when my daughter had been diagnosed, I read her paper, The Creative Poor Person, and I became so fascinated by novelty because I see, at least in my own daughter and other kids I work with, you know, their biggest deficit is not seeking out the environment, you know, doing the same thing repetitively. And, you know, I think I might have said this earlier, but when I called her up, I was like, I want to recreate, you know, I want to replicate your study of porpoises with children with autism. And I, I'm pretty sure she said to me, I've been waiting 35 years for this phone call. And it's still my plan to do that in my lifetime. You know, she mentored me for a while on how to teach novelty. This is something that most people would not think. But uh, you look at schedules of reinforcement and you think, what is it about some people, right, that get bored very quickly and seek out new experiences and thereby expose themselves to more learning opportunities? And so, I'm so fascinated by that. But then I look at what in, enriched environment and how you spoke about your father encouraging you to ask questions and keep asking and seeking out more information from a very early age. So, yeah, what should I ask you next? I've asked you so much and you've given so much. I mean, I just done a massive high, I have to say. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about, I guess, your love for inner behavior, where that's taken you now and how that's impacted the trajectory of, of how you spent your time, which you have a very good understanding of because you keep a record of it. So you complete your PhD. Where did that take you? That took me to being a principal of K through 12 school, or actually at the time preschool through 12 school, of children yeah. with emotional and behavior problems, which I absolutely yeah. loved. And then yeah. from there, I went to being an elementary school principal for eight years. And it might <laughs> they weren't quite as severe, and some of them were positively normal and above average, and it was great, in, above average in behavior and thinking and learning and creativity. But it was, uh, and then what was it? Oh, we got robbed one time too many in Kansas. And my husband wow. said, we're moving. You bought some land up in Alaska. No, we're moving. We have a house in Oregon. Call my mother up and tell her we're moving in with her. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I don't know why he asked me to do that. Oh, I know. I was there. You know, I was at the house. He said, tell my mother we're moving in with her. And I did. And and, uh, she thought that was a wonderful idea. She was schizophrenic. And sometimes she was as normal as the day is long. And other days she was way out somewhere else on a different planet. And then Robert said, you know, you bought that land up in Alaska. 
why don't we go to Alaska? And it's like, hey, that's great. Both of us love the outdoors. We love trees, the forest. I adore the ocean. If we'd moved in with his mother and we'd already bought the house years earlier after his father died, and we would be living in the desert. And I can't be that far away from the ocean. So at least not permanently. So we moved up here and we live in the largest temperate rainforest on the planet. It's what great. year did you move there? 1997. Right. And one of the things that, as I mentioned earlier, I have kept a journal. I, st- <laughs> I started in 1963 when I moved to Scotland and I was studying philosophy. I'd already majored in psychology as an undergraduate at the University of Colorado. Now I'm going to pursue philosophy. And so I started this journal, my aim being to solve the gap between philosophy and psychology. (laughs) Wrong! (laughs) So what ended up happening was I just kept this journal. I started in 63. So last night I happened to be going through it And I was absolutely astonished when I said, which is a term that I didn't even know I used, I was in Ecuador. And I said, oh, this is not a good day. I had another series of episodes yesterday. And what struck me about that was I wrote that statement in 2014, I think it was. And I didn't learn that I had epilepsy, which I've had since I was five. I didn't learn it until I was 75, 78, 78. I was 78 and that was two years ago. And it's like, oh my God. And then I was talking to a friend within the chart community. We've become very close because she has epilepsy also. So we are, and she's been charting her seizure since 1999, I think. And very clearly, very definitively, and so, and we've looked at one another's charts, et cetera. And so I thought, well, what she calls them moments. And I thought, okay, but when I get a whole bunch of moments that run together like this and last for, you know, 37 minutes or five hours and t- three minutes or something, that's not a moment. That's an episode of collective moments. And although I say I count them, it's like, you know, I might, well, I had one this summer that was, I think, 23 minutes long where my vision just went back and forth, you know, super duper fast. Yeah. How do you start and stop a duration of episode? What, what you count? As I literally look at my watch. Yeah. But what are you observing in your own behavior that's starting and stopping the episode? It's like my head is going 360 degrees very fast, continuously, or it might be feeling natural high. I don't have a better definition than that, but I would like one. I might have an illusion, a hallucination. I have come to find out that when I feel nauseous, that it's the beginning of something. You know, that's the that's right. the aura that I usually have is feeling nauseous. So charting this, this behavior, well, only, it's only in the last two years that you've known that this behavior that you recognize in yourself, which is a story in itself, is due to epilepsy. What has charting your own behavior, having known that now, told you about anything you can do to minimize the effects of 
epilepsy. I guess obviously the assessment of medication is one thing, the effectiveness of medication. What else? Well, this is pretty obvious, and, and I knew this anyway, but uh, it showed up on the charts, the chart, that you need to get enough sleep. And I was yeah. reading this fantastic book about a man who has epilepsy, and I read it until 11.30 one night, and the next night I read it until about 10 o'clock. Both of those nights I only got about four and a half hours sleep, and that was like a Tuesday and a Wednesday Thursday, I was a mess. I was tearful and I was depressed. Thursday and Friday. And then Saturday, I thought I was doing okay, but I went to play speed solitaire with the same group of friends that have known me for, we've been doing this for 10 or 15 years. And then the next day, one of the people said, are you okay? You were a little off last night. Right. You know, I've been trying to hide this all my life, not knowing what it was. And yeah. so I asked her to describe that to me. Well, she's a very practical person. I, I don't know whether she could put it in words. And so then it's what I do is I have to watch my behavior. And when by counting it, I mean, this week it was pretty obvious. Don't get four and a half hours sleep a night for crying out loud. But yeah. mostly it's if I have a whole bunch of these little ones in one day, then it's like, okay, something's going on. Watch it slow down, take it easy, make sure you take a nap today, or make sure you take a walk, you know, watch your behavior more carefully than usual, so that you don't okay. go off the deep end. And what are you chatting duration of episode or instances? When they start into a duration, then I look at my watch. I mean, I don't have yeah. clonic seizures. So I can look at my watch at the beginning of it, and say, okay, it's 9.23, and, or it's one thirty-two, and then I can look at my watch at the end of it. If I'm in really bad shape, I'll write down the time. Right. Or if somebody else is around. And, and in that moment, do you just stop doing anything? It depends. What I have since started doing is, no, I used to just power my way through it. I mean, I'd be yes. at work and this would Not knowing what it was. Yeah. I mean, I'm at work. I'm a principal. I'm in charge of this building of, you know, 300 kids with emotional or buildings with emotional and behavior problems. I can't just stop. But what I ended up doing for four days, two of them at work, two of them on the weekend, I could, it was so, it was just so constant. I couldn't count it. And so wow. I had to, mark, yeah, I had to mark on the chart too much to count or, you know, couldn't, couldn't count it. And so, so how on a day that, earth what's I a function? bad day on a day when you can count it? A bad day is when it lasts for four or five hours. A bad day wow. is when it lasts for an hour and I can't stop it. And it, it might be different things. I mean, I might it might be repeated hallucin short repeated short hallucinations. Have you found anything that you can do to in the moment to stop it or to redirect it or interrupt it? Not yet. Sometimes I know I can't stand up because I'm so dizzy I'd fall over. I meditated from the early 70s, probably 72, until two years ago, every morning for 20, 30 minutes. And what I found was that this behavior occurs a lot when I'm meditating. Now, a right. lot of people that I know with epilepsy find that meditation helps calm them down. For me, it puts me in that out-of-body space. And right. it's like, that's one of the things, it feels great as long as I know that it will stop. 
But right. when I'm sitting there, I tried the other day, and it's like, I'm gone. I'm out of my body. I am not here in this chair. I don't know where I am. And so it's like I have to get better control of this in some way before I can start meditating again. So it's like that's out the window for me. Not out the window for somebody else. You know, that may yeah. help them, but it's out the window for me for right now. And yeah. uh, changing diet was an immensely helpful thing. Yeah, it was really amazing to me. But if it lasts longer, I mean, I can handle it if it lasts for five or ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. If it goes beyond five or ten minutes, I'm, I just put down what I'm doing, and I just sit or I go over in the armchair and sit down in the armchair. I head to the house if my husband is in the house because I know that somebody will be there if I go off. And what would that mean, going off? Going off yeah. means uh, possibly passing out. Possibly yeah. going unconscious is what it is. I've learned to lie down on the floor before I fall down. This doesn't happen anymore with the medication, but I mean, with the increased medication. But it would be, you know, what do I be finding being with someone? And it's like I was in the middle of a Zoom Pilates class one on one. And I said to yeah. the instructor who's in New York, call my husband and yeah. tell him I'm up here and I, I need him. And so she called him and he didn't answer the phone and she called, which he usually doesn't. And she called him again and he answered the phone and she said, uh, Abigail's upstairs and she needs you up there. Well, I don't know what she said to him. I mean, I probably heard her because we're on zoom, but he knows, you know, that I'm off and something happened yesterday. And he said to me, are you okay? Oh, I know. It was in the middle of the night, got up to go to the bathroom, dizzy as all get out. So I counted that. And when I got back into bed, he said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I am. You know, I was dizzy. Now I'm not. So thank you. And uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated about your discipline in counting those durations. In that moment where you felt a dizzy episode, would you have quickly penciled it down somewhere, the duration? I look what at my you- watch and I remember it. And you remember it. I wow. remember the time, so which is very unusual from what I've heard from other people with epilepsy. So you might count five minutes, 30 or whatever is an epi- a dizzy episode. And what is the behavior that you're charting there? I'm charting any one of 13 behaviors that is not normal. And wow. I've, got them, I've got them in a list. Do you think with the associate that you're working with who's also a behavior analyst in the charter, does she have different ones? I'm trying to think. Yes, she does. What she's right. counting is slightly different from what I'm counting. Do you think this work you're doing together as a project might, you know, impact the epileptic community? Well, is I that think that's, you know, it's interesting because we've said, okay, how many people are we going to get? Both of us were charters. And uh, yeah. how many people are we going to get counting this? And that's not our aim. I think our aim is more to inform people about what happens to us. I mean, she, her epilepsy, she's on, well, when, when we first started, she was on three times the medication I was. Oh. And she has tonic-clonic seizures. Now they're under control. I've never had a tonic-clonic seizure. So we don't have the same thing going on. But as the more people I talk to and the more I read, it's like, Everybody's epilepsy is different. There are no people. I mean, this is, you know, from a 
in a medical article. You know, no two people have the same set of symptoms. I mean, the brain is enormous compared to any other part of the body, and and we can't see it the way we can see a knee or something yeah. like that. And so it's it's hard to analyze. So I just figure we're we're offering information. And yeah. yes, it would be great if more people would count, but I don't know. It's it's hard. I find oh, I've had people count fetal kicks when they were pregnant. And yeah. some of them did, some of them didn't. Some of them counted for an hour a day. And I'm like, oh, I think it needs to be more than an hour a day. Well, that's all I can manage, you know, or, you know, four hours a day. And can you count all day? No. You know, so. Yeah. I guess coming in contact with counting your own behavior, putting on a chart and watching over time, you know, gets you in contact with the reinforcement for doing that, which brings me to my next question because. I'm guessing you're going to say it's no coincidence that you had a near-death experience at the age of five and from a very early age became very aware that your own behavior was different to what you would describe as normal. Is that fair to say? Do you think that influenced your love and passion for this field of understanding what occurs below the skin? I don't know as I'd call it love because it okay. <laughs> it was a real yeah. love-hate relationship. Your interest. My your interest. interest. You know, my, try, my curiosity in trying to yeah. figure out what was going on and being, well, I grew up in an analytic family, but being very analytic about, you know, what's going on. And I never counted any of this until, until 1976. And the day that Og nailed me on one, I, I, I was already counting. But, you know, I walked yeah. into his office one day and, and he said, have you been smoking pot? And I'm like, <laughs> really, Og? I didn't say this, but it's like, do you really think I would do that before I met with an esteemed person who was my PhD advisor? You know, I wanted to say, you got to be nuts if you think that. But I didn't. Um, he said, what's wrong? And I said, no, everything's fine. You know, it's like, meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, baloney, everything's fine. You know, right now, good and well, everything is not fine. But I was not about to tell people what was going on in my brain. They might think I was crazy, you know, and, and sometimes people have, you know, sometimes it professional was, people have. What are your early memories of, you know, gee, I'm, I might be different or having different experiences than someone else? Probably as soon as I could get out of bed and start walking, which was the epileptologist I see put it down as learning to walk again, which I thought, well, that feels a bit like an exaggeration. But I guess if you've been in bed for three months and you, the first time you get out of bed, you know, it's like, I mean, I knew that I needed to put one foot in front of the other. Makes me feel So weaker. this is at the age of five, you mean? When yeah, you yeah, yeah. After the near-death experience that. when I could finally get up and walk to the bathroom which, by the way, was in between me and the bathroom was a 20-foot-long hallway, 22-foot-long hallway. Wow. And so I had to get to the door of the bedroom, my parents' bedroom, and then when I got to the end of this 22-foot hallway, I had to get into the little entryway that went into the two bathrooms that we had on that floor. So it was probably, probably walking 25 feet. And I remember that there was one place where the stairway goes down and I remember thinking, I have to get from this wall to that banister. And, you know, I'm five. I'm a little kid. I'm looking at a stairway. And, I mean, it, it had a landing, so it had maybe eight steps. 
but it's like, I got to get from point A to point B and not fall down those stairs. And I don't know. I was pretty amazed when I did that. And in one of the conversations I had with you, you started to become aware that some of the things you were saying to yourself might be things that other, you know, children wouldn't be saying to themselves. You said, I was very aware that my subvocal behavior was different to other children. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you attribute that to the epilepsy. I do now. You know, I mean, I then I attributed it to having scarlet fever and a near-death experience and wondering if I had any wondering if I had any brain damage. I mean, this was yeah. 1947. I started working Gosh. at a school <laughs> for children with mi- what we then called minimal brain dysfunction or minimal brain damage. Yeah. 12 years later, when I was 18 years old, I worked there full time while I went Gosh. to the University of Colorado yeah. full time. Yes. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was just, uh, I was drawn to you know, and before that, I volunteered at a, a hospital ward for terminally ill children. You know, it's like without, I mean, I wish I could have said to myself, okay, you got something going on in here yourself, Abigail. Now you need to figure out and maybe working on this ward will help you. Maybe working with these children will help you. I didn't have that kind of awareness. It was just, I was yeah. drawn to the field of special education. I was drawn yeah. to the field of people who have problems. Because, lo and behold, you know, I was walking around. I used to refer to, i got to get rid of this albatross that I'm carrying around. Wow. When was the first time you shared that with somebody? Where you got, I'm living with this thing, this secret. The first time I shared it with someone was 2009. And I had had, whoo, I'd had a Lulu. And Robert was in Juneau, 60 miles away by air, because there's no road to Juneau. And he was working as a nurse at the prison. And I went, I went off. I mean, my body was not, my left hand was completely numb. My right hand was partially numb. I couldn't walk right. I couldn't walk at a normal speed. I I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt like I was, I was just not with my body. And so I finally realized, don't call a friend, call 911. And I ended up in the hospital in Juneau. They flew me over to the hospital. They had no idea what was wrong with me. Right. And for some reason, I'm sitting there waiting for the ER doctor, the emergency room doctor, to show up. And I'm telling the person who has taken my name and asked me to fill out forms and asked me how I'm feeling. I'm talking, I'm telling her about having had scarlet fever when I was five years old. And I had never told that to a close, well, I may have told it, you know, as a factual thing, but I'd never told it to a person saying, this is related to what's going on with me right now. And I have no idea. So I go in, the ER doc shows up and, and uh, I go in and I'm talking to him and he ordered a MRI that night. And then the next day had me come back for a CT scan. And, but I told him that night you know, about the near-death experience and the scarlet fever and the whatever strange things were going on in my brain that I told him about. And he wrote down nonspecific neurological symptoms. And I thought I wanted to hug that man. And I've never written him a note or called him to say thank you. Probably doesn't even remember who I am, but that's okay. Still doesn't say I can't thank him. When I saw that, I thought, thank you. 
you are the first person to get me on the path of something that you don't know what it is and I don't know what it is, but you are on the right track. But it was 10 years later before you got a diagnosis. Right, right. A decade. And what happened um, was that I had some episodes in a doctor's office or shortly before in 2019 and where often with epilepsy, with a seizure, you end up with an irregular heartbeat. And I didn't know that until probably last week or the week before, sometime within the past month. And when I heard people start talking about it, and it's like, ooh, ooh, this is interesting. So the person in Juneau that I saw 10 years later said, you need to see a cardiologist. And I said, no, I don't. It's not my heart. It's in my brain. So we got in this funny little argument about that. And I've since seen her, and I said, she said, you had either an arrhythmia or an irregular heartbeat. I can't remember which she said. Well, that was last June. Now I know that that goes along with seizure, whatever type of seizure it is. So the next time I see her, I thought I can call her up and tell her that, or I can send her a note in you know, the chart or whatever, but I can, it can also wait until the next time I see her because I don't want it to be a challenge or anything else. I just want it to be information for her. And, and she's somebody, she worked with my husband. And so it's somebody that, you know, we know on a first name basis and, and I like her. She's great. You know, so I just want to. So, um, your current doctor that you see in terms of epilepsy though, you have shared charts with him. Well, yeah. So she sent me up to Anchorage to a cardiologist. I go, yeah. I take my charts, both the hand done ones and the computer ones and the uh, computer ones. And I take them up there and he looks at it. Well, the first thing he says, he walks into the office and he says, what are you or into the consultation room and says, what are you doing here? And I said, thank you. (laughs) Both of us knew I was in the wrong place. And four times in 23 minutes, he said, you have epilepsy. Wow. And so he said, you know, go back to Juneau and get a referral to Renton, Washington, to the um, neurology clinic there. Was that the first time you'd ever contemplated that that's what it could be? Uh, no, it was not the first time I'd ever contemplated, but it was the first time anybody gave me absolute confirmation. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, wait a minute, he's a cardiologist. He's not a neurologist. You know, he could be yeah. wrong. I mean, it probably took me a year to really, maybe six months to begin to accept that maybe this was true. Because I kept on thinking, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else. Even though I could look at the chart, you know, and I could look at... Sheila's chart, and I could see, you know, that, you know, we got, we got something going on here. So when I finally was in the neurologist, the epileptologist's office, and I showed him a chart, he said, why are you using a ratio chart? And I thought, oh, Lord, <laughs> you know, now I have to convince this guy, you know, as I have had so many teachers or parents, never the children. Yeah. The children had no problem with it. It's the adults that had a problem with it. And I, I often thought, well, this would not be true of an epileptologist, but, you know, what, what's your math problem was, you know, one of my first <laughs> thoughts that would come to my mind. And anyway, so I just thought, well, he passed that off. And then I saw him uh, 
probably seen him four or five times. And then the last time I saw him, which was June, I showed him the monthly chart of the monthly totals. And uh, from July or August 19, I mean, 2019 until, uh, I don't know whether I put June on that one or not, but definitely through May, but it may have been June because it was the end of the month. And uh, he said, may I make a copy of this? And I said, here, I already made you one. You have it. And uh, so he kept a copy of it. So Sheila and I are both very apprehensive as we write this article. And it's a, you know, it's a data-based professional research article uh, with an N of two, you know, a single subject design. Where will it be published? Well, we don't know. I mean, we haven't yeah. yet even had the courage to show it to our epileptologists. <laughs> I mean, hers may not be wow. courage. Mine is definitely courage. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting because a, a friend from childhood called me. Her husband was a neurologist in New York City and a very well-respected one. And she said, oh, you would so much like a conversation with my husband, and he would love to talk to you. Well, he died about five years ago, six years ago. And it's like, I know, Virginia, I would really like to just sit down. And I mean, he's not my neurologist. You know, I'd just like to sit down and say, hey, Robert, here are my data. You know, what, you know, here's my description. And, uh, you know, talk to me. But that's not an no one else. No one else on the planet would have this amount of data about their own behavior. Right, probably not. So on that note, I'm very aware of your time constraints. I want to, I mean, didn't even get into your writing and how charting and precision teaching has impacted you as a writer and a poet, but I, of course, will reference your website and people can find their way to your writing. May I interrupt for just a minute because there's an article that I wrote called Writing on Writing, and that's published in the International Journal of Educational Research. I think that's the name of it, the International Journal of Educational Research. And so there are charts in there. Wonderful. I'm going to reference that in our resources. And that's, you can get to it through my website too. So wonderful. Yeah. There's so many things that I wanted to uh, convey to the audience about you, but I'm very aware of your own time, but I wanted, I've asked this question of many people in the precision teaching community, because you know, when I'm, I might get emotional here, but, you know, when I found my way to this community of people, you know, it changed the trajectory of my daughter's life and the the children that I worked with. You know, I was a BCBA that hadn't been exposed much to precision teaching or the chart. And when I did approach it, you know, my supervisor at the time thought that I had joined some crazy cult and I'd lost my mind. And my goal in producing this podcast is to get people in touch with this extraordinary the underpinnings of our science that seems to be lost, you know, to someone that just is learning a little bit. And I wanted to ask you a question if you remain hopeful that applied behaviour analysis can draw on this work and, you know, profoundly impact people that they work with. Do you still remain hopeful that people will get in contact with standard measurement and the use of the chart in their work? It's not just within the field of behavior analysis. It's anywhere. I mean, education, medicine, sports. There are some phenomenal things. Diana Dean in nursing when she was training nurses and Martin Levy from New York City who teaches 
I forget exactly where, Beth Israel comes to mind, and he has his students whom he's teaching orthopedics to do charts in their learning. Yeah. What Sheila and I are interested in is, and, and this is what Diana was interested in too, is getting the chart so that we're, we're looking at these kinds of data in this specific way. I mean, that was her goal. And I remember she talked to Og about developing an hour chart, a 10-minute chart, you know, because those are some of the time frames that you look at people's behavior with when you're in the medical field. And then Kirk Kirby has really, Steve Graff did it originally. He has since died. Kirk Kirby has done an incredible job with taking it into the field of physical sports, probably physical therapy as well. And, you know, just all the different, uh, John Eshelman and Steve Graff and Malcolm Neely looked at, and I've done a little bit of it, but nothing like what they did as far as, you know, the trajectories of, John has charted the Aurora Borealis in, you know, the 1800s or whatever, I don't know, you know, and the yellow plague, the, uh, or yellow fever, the bubonic plague, you know, these different, and of course now there's yeah. that website or that uh, Facebook page that yeah, is doing on uh, standard acceleration chart and COVID-19, which is yeah. just, I mean, talk about a monumental collection of medical data. And we only yeah. came upon it because of this terrible pandemic that has struck the planet. And so, you know, there are other areas of uh, tap dancing, music. You know, I taught a student piano and I had one clicker in one hand for correct notes and another one for the errors, incorrect notes that she played. She'd never played the piano. She just wanted to. She was five or six. And I didn't teach her how to read music. But in 34 lessons, she got to the point where she could play, compose two and three notes, note chords with both hands and play it. And it was absolutely fabulous. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, and then, oh, Kent Corso and what he's done, he works in the suicide area. Um, he's a uh, clinical psychologist. And so we've done some things with the military. Yes. And there are some wonderful videos on YouTube, which I'll also reference for people that are interested in that work. So that is wonderful information, but you didn't ask my question of whether you remain hopeful. Yes, I do. I oh do remain hopeful. Whether it will be the behavior analysis community, I think it's more likely it will be people, just, you know, the random people. I mean, Sheila and I think, ah, oh, if we could get this into a medical journal, it would be fabulous. If we could get it into a behavior analysis journal, that would be good. You know, those are our aims. And, you know, of course, we're both hoping, I mean, at least I am, you know, I hope when I show him the article, you know, he'll say, where are you publishing this? And usually you think of where you want to publish it before you write it. But we're just driven to write this article. I mean, it's just driven is not the right word. But, yeah, you know, we're I guess what I'm really, well, I, I just wanted to go on from something that you said there. But, you know, it's people from outside the field of behavior analysis that when I show them a chart, it's such, it's so evident to them. So I do a lot of parent training. You know, I, I just... Sometimes I just get parents to count, okay, number of instructions issued and number of instructions followed. 
realizing that a lot of parents stop asking their kids to do anything for them because it's so punishing. And when they put on a chart, this is like, why don't my kids have this at school? You know, why it's to people outside of our, the field of behavioral analysis, it's very evident and very obvious that this is an extremely powerful tool. And on that note, I wanted to say that it's only just recently that I became aware of AIMSTAR, a project that you've been involved in. And I think it's, it's a, such an easy tool to use. Like you can learn to chart in a matter of minutes. Of course, you put a lot of your work on paper charts. I tradition, I learned how to chart on a paper chart as well. But in Australia, it's actually very difficult to get your hands on a paper chart because you have to order them online and it takes a long time to get here. And so can you talk a little bit about AIMSTAR because there are people listening to this that could start using a chart today and it's a free application. Talk to me about your how you came to be involved in that project. It has to do with, uh, well, Kent and I, he was in the Air Force for 10 years. His wife is a colonel in a branch of the medical aspect of all of the units, all of the branches, I mean. And I'm connected with the military because my husband was in, uh, well, he did three tours and he retired. He started off enlisted and retired with uh, 28 years and uh, a senior officer. So although I've never been in the military, I've always been interested in that. And nobody, well, I thought nobody in my family was in the military until I learned more. No, I never thought that. I had, my cousin's husband was killed in World War II. So from the time of being a little kid, I, and I mean, I was, I was alive and aware of World War II during that time. And we had relatives living in England. So that, and then he met two co, or not co-workers, but two military fellows, one called him randomly. And so they started working with us and can we do a computer chart? And so we've done that. And right now, AIMSTAR Lite is free up to five charts. You can use that. And in fact, that's what I use right now. Mike, our um, computer tech, our IT person, sorry, is developing, is refining the light one. And we will come out with that shortly. And in that group of these three military guys and me, I'm the, what's called in military lingo, the SME, the subject matter expert. You know, I'm the person who has, you know, decades of charting behind me. And uh, what I loved, and I mean, I love this. Kent sent me a chart. um, I don't know. What's this? 2021, probably 10 or 12 years ago of suicides in the air force. I mean, you just, you know, he found a chart, he charted it and he sent it to me. And it's like, I love things like that. You know, Giordana sends me a chart in 2000, I think it was. And it's like, Giordana, I didn't even know you were doing this project, you know, and she sends me this chart. And so I love it when I get these random charts. It's sort of like, you know, I didn't know Doug was working, Kostowitz was working on an article. I didn't know when Rick Cabina was working on his master's degree that he was doing inner behavior. He did it before Doug did it. And, you know, and I, I mean, they're like gifts. You know, these people just, you know, they hear about it and they do it. Now, it's certainly not as happening as quickly as what I had hoped it would. I remember telling Og when I heard his first lecture, there were 100 
people there. Maybe there were, no, there were more like 300 people there. And I said, oh, oh, this is absolutely fantastic. You know, people will be doing this all over the place. It'll be in the schools in no time, which is what we believed when we were at the University of Oregon in special ed. You know, people will get this special ed thing and they'll start, not even with the chart, they'll start realizing, I'm sorry, it doesn't happen that fast. You know, it's it's taken a life's many, many, many people's lives worth of work to get people to realize that, you know, and that's the way I view epilepsy and that's why I talk about it. We didn't used to talk about children with retardation. We didn't used to talk about adults in mental hospitals, as they were called then. We didn't used to talk about autism. You know, these were verboten subjects. You just didn't bring it up. I have a problem in my family. You know, I feel like Robin Williams or Trevor Noah right now. You know, it's like, this is happening. You know? And when I found out I had epilepsy, I thought, I'm not going to be one of these silent people going around. Because yeah. people are afraid of people with epilepsy, the same they, they, the way they were with people who were retarded or whatever the disability might be. And cerebral palsy, anything. I mean, you know, it's like, I'm just going to be out front with it. And so yeah. I'm collecting ideas for, I usually write more than one book at a time. And I'm collecting ideas right now for a book, a, a memoir about having epilepsy. And yeah. um, I came up with the idea April 13th of this year that I needed to write a memoir. Well, I was talking to a friend who had done some counting. She's a psychiatrist. And she said, Abigail, she said, that's not a novel. That's a memoir. And it's not about whatever you're thinking it, uh, it's about. It's about epilepsy. And I said, oh, my gosh, Susan, you're right. And uh, so. And is that your next publication that you expect to come out? I don't know whether it'll be the next publication because I'm working on a couple of others at the same time, a couple of other books at the same time. So, but it will, it will happen. So. Yeah. Well, I want to wind up by saying that this has been one of the most wonderful experiences of my life spending, I don't know, more than six hours with you today. And I would just love to learn so much more from you. And I just, I guess I have been struck by your courage uh, your boldness and I think people in this community of precision teaching have to have that within them because we are on the outer edges of um, and, and people might think we're a little bit crazy I guess I'm inspired because I'm in the process of trying to educate our authorities in Australia and through a, a program we have called the National Disability Insurance Scheme about the importance of making service providers accountable for what they do with children with disabilities. And just yesterday there was a major case that came out where for, I imagine, I haven't spoken to Gia Donna about this, but it might be the first time that authorities have really looked at charts and been able to see the reduction in severe and challenging behaviours on chart. And it was presented as evidence to a court case and his family got a significant amount of funding as a result because his deceleration on SIB in one year was profound and even they could work it out. These are authority figures in government that were able to look at my myself, my self-injury charts and my aggression charts and my PICA charts and go, wow, this is pretty interesting stuff. And we can see a profound improvement in a child in 12 months who has been struggling for a long time. So I'm 
my commitment and what I feel very motivated by spending time with you and is to be bold and courageous and I can't remember how you described it but so beautiful but challenge yourself to think outside of what you're currently doing to see if there is something in precision teaching that might improve the way you teach and behavior you take and you're an incredible stand for charting your own behavior and learning about inner behavior which so many people outside of the field behavior analysis think that we ignore (laughs) <laughs> and then we don't care and care about things that you know occur below the skin so there are just so many messages that have come out of our time together and I I can't thank you enough it's one of my last privileges to have spent time with you and there are a lot of resources that I'm going to share with our audience of course Aimstar which you can uh, find in the Apple store but your work and your publications and photos and so many things and feel incredibly proud to have been able to share a tiny snippet of your life's work in this format. Good. It's been a lot of fun too, Mandy. Yeah. I do have a question for you. Are you considering going to the Boston ABBA International May of 2022? Well, you know, I live in a state of Australia and we're not allowed to travel outside of this state. Yeah, we have zero rates of COVID, but as soon as I can travel, yeah, I'll be coming back to the state. So it's where I found my way to precision teaching when I was living in Indianapolis and it's now become my life's work here. And, I, I mean, you know, Giordana Herka is a, you know, she has did her PhD in Australia in in precision teaching, but there are very few people in this country using a standard acceleration chart. I don't know any maybe one that I've been introduced to that I'm still in the process of reaching out to, but I don't know anyone else that charts. So I have a big job ahead of me, but I will be back to America as soon as I possibly can. I can't. And on that note, because I hopefully people will be listening to this before the Precision Teaching Conference. The Precision Teaching Conference, which presents yes. all data on these charts, will be in Florida November 11th and 12th this year. And then the Association for Behavior Analysis International Conference will be in Boston, both of those being in the States, in May of this year. And then actually the ABBA International, which is every other year, is going to be in Dublin in September of 22. And then the first International Precision Teaching Conference will be in Galway in June of 23. Great. So where can people find out more about that in the Standard Acceleration Society? Acceleration.org. Acceleration.org. C-E-L-E-R-A-T-I-O-N. Right. I know you know how to spell it, but. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but if you type it into your phone, it will automatically change it to celebration, (laughs) which is kind of appropriate, isn't it? So, (laughs) well, I want to celebrate that. I undertook this project to try and bring stories of precision teaching to more people and I could not have imagined a better person to tell their story, an extraordinary life, and you still have a long way to go and a lot of charts to produce, a lot of behaviour to to collect. So thank you at times one billion for your time and energy and your laughter and your hopefulness about, you know, how people can use the chart and what has been learnt to date about how to change their own behaviour and and people that they work and maybe become a better partner in the process. I believe I did. (laughs) (laughs) 
I believe I did. Well, My husband thank was you fine. So much. Oh, thank you very much, Mandy. I really appreciate it. I have enjoyed it immensely. I hope you enjoyed your time with Abigail. I'm so grateful for her time and her assistance in launching this podcast. To find out more about Abigail and her extraordinary work, including her writing, you can visit her at www.abigailbcorkin.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ABN PT podcast. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast in the platform you're listening to this episode on. And if you'd like to be part of our community, check out our Instagram and Facebook page, the ABA MPT podcast, where we post regularly about precision teaching and ABA topics. And if you'd like to interact with like-minded people that are looking to learn more about PT, you can also join our ABA MPT podcast Facebook group. You can find all these in the show notes of this episode. In our next episode, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Kimberly Behrens, who talks to me about the state of play in ABA and her insight into how the science has strayed from its underpinnings, her mentorship by Dr. Ogden Linsley, and what we can do to ensure our measurement is adhering to behaviour science. And speaking of giants, I leave you with one of Og's most famous quotes. Stand on my shoulders as I stood on Fred Skinner's shoulders. You see more big things from up here, and you see further. Ogden R. Linsley.